Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast, where we explore the life and times of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and delve into the history of World War I, World War II, and the Korean War. Those interested in the history of the Philippines or World War II know of the bombing of Clark Field on December 8, 1941 few hours right after the destruction of Pearl Harbor. And it was the destruction of American air power in the Philippines at the outset of the war in the Pacific. Most people, however, they don't know the history of Clark Field. And that is what we're here to talk about today with Dr. Rick Meixel of James Madison University, author of Clark Field and the U.S. Army Air Corps in the Philippines. Uh, Dr. Meixel, uh, let's set the stage and begin. What was or is Clark Field, Clark Air Base in the Philippines? To start at the beginning, a little before the formation of Clark, the, the Army has great ambition when it goes to the Philippines early in the century. It plans to stay a long time, to keep a lot of soldiers there, to have some involvement in the future development of America's relationship with the Philippines. And part of that was putting bases, uh, posts, Army posts, uh, throughout the archipelago, one of which uh, became known as Camp Stotzenberg. Uh, a large post, the largest by acreage, the largest post uh, in the Army outside of the United States uh, for some time. And that was placed uh, just outside Angeles in Pampanga in 1902. And then when air power arrives in the Philippines uh, after World War I, that because it's an existing Army post and it's large and has space, then, then an airfield is placed there as well. And it turned out to be more successful than the other, more appropriate than the other airfields, and so it, it became more prominent and longer lasting. Now you talk about Camp Stotzenberg. Now who was that named after? Well that is named after, uh, as posts were at the time, some of them anyway, after prominent American soldiers who had been killed fighting in the Philippine-American War. Uh, Stotzenberg, John Stotzenberg, Colonel, Commanding Officer of the Nebraska Regiment. Now, the, you talk about um, in the book that Camp Stotzenberg is one of nine zones that they create in the Philippines as, as basis to basically control the Philippines. Now, is this, is this nine, Leonard Wood's plan, or is this the Army's plan? Or uh, Well, I, I think I wrote in there something about there being nine posts. Right, the exactly. Space throughout the... Luzon uh, diagonally and horizontally, to, uh, vertically and horizontally to uh, to control the population mm -hmm. and uh, defend from from possible invasion. That was not Leonard Wood. That predates Leonard. Okay. Wood. What Leonard Wood's unique contribution was as commanding general of, of the, the Department of the Philippines was to turn Stotzenberg into a massive post. It was under his. Uh, authority that it went from being a few thousand acres to 150,000. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did that purposely because he, he wanted the Army to prepare for war. He wanted to get rid of the 30-year the private, uh, the, the traditional regimental soldiering, and, and uh, have a modern Army that, that spent its time preparing for war. Right. And here was a big open space to do it and no political opposition because it's the Philippines where Filipinos don't really have a voice. And it's pretty remote from Manila, 
as well? Is there a reason why they put it so distant? And, and basically, there's very few ways to get there when they really open it at the beginning, of, at the uh, turn of the century. Well, uh, there's a railroad that runs through the center, center of Luzon, and uh, in, in that sense, it's remote. There are posts in Manila, of Was course. that built by the Spanish? Uh, the railroad? I, I think it was an English contract. An English, right, okay, right. The, during the, the Spanish, Spanish uh, period. So, uh, well, the, the, just the population of the Philippines was so much smaller than, wasn't it, about 7 million maybe, mm. and today it's around 100 million. Right. So, so even though it's like 50 miles north, and maybe it doesn't seem like it's remote, it, it's a ways away, and there's plenty of, of room to expand. And all these trails that go to, in and out of the area. And a very famous song came out of Camp Sotsburg, Yeah, that's right, didn't it? that's right. Once a famous... Uh, event, uh, I suppose, known to all soldiers. There was an old trail that dated from the Spanish period that ran along the northern edge of, of Camp Stotzenberg, the part that extended well into Tarlac province. And uh, yeah, that, uh, who's that guy? Ira Gruber? Uh, and it's the, the, the Army Quezon uh, song, yeah, Over Hill, Over Dale. And, and that so, comes from the Philippines. And supposedly he, uh, those words occurred to him as he was listening to a uh, watching, waiting for an artillery artillery batteries to, to move along that road. Now when do the first airplanes come into the Philippines? Before it's before it's World before War World War One. Uh, so there are there is there are airplanes in the Philippines. There's sort of a novelty idea right. at that time. Look, we've got this interesting new thing. I wonder what we can do with it. So they're they're mostly seaplanes. And you talk about a guy named Vernon Burge that was one of the first pilots uh, that comes over there. Yeah, but uh, an enlisted man. And, right. And they don't have enough officer pilots, so they open. Uh, accept applications from interested enlisted men. I believe he, he worked uh, with airplanes, and and so yeah, I believe he was the first. Uh, now this plane that they uncrate over the, is it like a Wright flyer? I mean, or no, close, no. Close in to in the book, I talk about how they. That's how they get airplanes to the Philippines. Those early de Havilands was they come in crates, mm. and when you get it, you uncrate it and put the thing together. Right. Uh, but those were the uh, the de Havilands that I that I spoke of in the book. Yeah. Now, what happened at Stotzenberg in, in World War One? It kind of clears out, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a real backwater. I, I didn't mention it in, in the book, but there's actually a uh, once a fairly well-known book called Too Many Boats uh, by an Army Officer. It's a novel, but it's set at Stotzenberg in World War One. And what it's about is how unhappy all the officers are, uh, how bored they are, how unhappy they are that they're stuck in the Philippines. Uh, while everyone else is is going off to war, so yeah, it was a backwater in World mm. War One. That probably uh, its most famous officer, not at the time, I, maybe, but later, was um, the first uh, black general. Oh right, was was the provost marshal at Stotzenberg because the the cavalry units were yeah, there. Yeah, the right. ninth the ninth, ninth black, cavalry right. regiment was there. Yeah. Wow. Now Charles Menaher. And he's MacArthur's commander in World War One, but after the war, he takes over the well, really the Army's Air uh, Corps, and he's the guy who really pushes for the Philippines. Can you talk about that Philippine project and and yeah. Ira Eaker that goes over there? Yeah, there there was some concern around 1919 that there the United States uh, there was a, something of a war scare with Japan, and there was a need to rush uh, resources to American outposts in the Pacific and and uh, a realization that um, they didn't have any airplanes over there. 
there had been some before the war they had crashed or been damaged and and uh, just the, the squadron had left. It had been operating from Corregidor, and uh, the because they have a field, they have a field on Corregidor Island. Uh, sort of. Yeah. It, it was a, a, a seaplane base and balloon uh, mm. and balloons there, uh, but they did have a little landing field, which they did give a name to Kinley Field. field. Right. But there was this sudden realization of the weakness of American military forces in the Far East. Let's get some forces over there, and so they had a, a quite ambitious plan to send uh, several air squadrons. Uh, nothing much came of it in the long run, but in the immediacy, some men were rushed over, some planes were rushed over. Ira Aker mm-hmm. was one of them, uh, a, a re- an officer who was thinking about getting out of the, the Army once the war was over, going back to college, and, and thought that sounded interesting, heard about it. The request for officers happened to come across his desk, so so he uh, added his name to the list. I, I don't think I put in the book, but I remember reading that that uh, he, a number of men had been listed, and he put his name on it, and theirs were all crossed off by someone, and his was left on. Mm. So he... Uh, and he becomes very famous in World War II, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. And because of his fame in World War II as commander of the Eighth Air Force, then what little you could learn about the Philippine, about Clark, when I was a kid there in the 60s and 70s, was uh, it, whatever it was, I Aker did it. You know, really? Well, he, may he was the legend there, of the but, base. But yeah. he was the only famous guy who had been at Stotzenberg uh, back when it was uh, uh, beginning to be turned into an air base in 1919. Now, the 1920s, uh, Clark really starts growing. And uh, they um, they get the third arrow squadron. Well, they I, I, there. I, maybe it doesn't grow too much, mm-hmm. but they do put some permanent facilities down. Uh, they do have this uh, third arrow squadron that uh, lays out the base and, and is stationed there for the next uh, twenty years or so. Back in the United States, are they really wary of putting money into this? Yes. Or, but there are some that are for it, some that are against it. Yeah, and there's a burst of enthusiasm and concern in 1919. Let's rush all these resources. Let's build these bases. Where can we put them? Well, we just happen to have this big base, Stotzenberg, a natural place, and we don't have any concerns with civilians about who owns the property, as they did in Manila, for mm-hmm. example. Um, but that that soon goes away. Whatever drove that enthusiasm, nothing comes of it. And so they don't really put a whole lot of resources into it in the 1920s. But, mm. but so. But when did they start building like the Nichols Field or, or the Nielsen Field? You know, well, there are other these, bases. All of these things uh, date to that 1919 time okay. period. Okay. Not Nielsen, that's separate. Okay. Uh, but uh, Kinley Field being built up. If you've been there today and you see that little dirt airstrip, it's hard to think that (laughs) that if you're in the Air Corps and the Air Service in the early 1920s and you go to the Philippines, this is where you were going to be stationed. Not not Manila, not Clark. A few, but mostly you're going to be on Kinley Field on the tail end of Corregidor. but again, there, there is Nichols Field. I think, as I explained in the book, they're looking for a place to put a field in Manila. They have problems getting the land they need. So they already had that little post that was uh, connected to Fort McKinley, and they just turned that into an airfield. Now, as far as Clark and, and Stotzenberg in these, in these early days, there's, well, the relationship between the American military, the civilian population, American military, Philippine military, there's really established codes of society that 
underlie everything, isn't there? As I explain in the book, there's not a lot of uh, interplay, interaction between the Filipino and, and American communities. The, uh, the Americans come over, it's a two-year tour of duty for the most part. Um, they're socially rather isolated, they socialize amongst themselves, they dream up things to keep themselves active. Where do Filipinos fit in? Well, they make life easy. They're servants. You know, they, they, uh, you hire three or four or five to, to make life comfortable. But, but you don't learn the language. You don't see a lot of the country. So it is a lot uh, of a colonial mindset it, it that's is, going it on. It is very, very much so. I think I mentioned in the book uh, talking to the late uh, Colonel Tom Jones, who had been stationed there just before the war, and, and he said, I could only remember one time when they had a social event that uh, they purposely invited Filipinos to participate in. And he meant Filipino military officers, not the Filipino civilians. Now, aren't our scouts, Philippine scouts, are they located at Stotzenberg mm -hmm. and Clark um, during this time? Yeah, Stotzenberg essentially became a scout base uh, in the 20s. As the Americans go home after World War One, the, the uh, infantry... Some of it stays in the Philippines, but most of it goes home at that time. Infantry and cavalry regiments, uh, particularly the cavalry regiments that had been the mainstay at Stotzenberg before World War One, and they're replaced by uh, by these Philippine scouts. Uh, scout cavalry regiment is there. Scout field artillery regiment is there. There, there's Clark Field, uh, and there are Americans at Clark Field because Filipinos weren't allowed to serve in the air service. But but that's a small part of the the larger. So there, at this point, there is no training of any kind of Philippine pilots or or. There there, there is there was the World War One effort to mm -hmm. to uh, have pilots with the Philippine National Guard, but it uh, it's uh, done away with by Wood Leonard Wood after he becomes Governor General, mostly for economic reasons, I think. Mm -hmm. Now, in the 1930s, um, and this is kind of off the subject of of Clark and Stotzenberg, but it really affects um, MacArthur history. Uh, in the book you talk about they when General Gruner in the late 30s comes in, they really increase the size of the scout regiments. And they bring in a lot of these people that had been trained with the Philippine Army already. And when they when they make this, they say that after six months that most of these new scouts are just as, you can't distinguish them from the old scouts. When MacArthur is building his army, when he, after he gets brought back as his safety commander, and he says, I only need about six months to train this army, into April 42, do you think he's looking at that example of when they brought in all these scouts from the Philippine army? Um, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not the late 30s. Of course, we're talking about 1941. Remember, Gruner becomes uh, commanding general of the Philippine Department. I guess it was in 40, he's pushing the uh, War Department, give me more resources, give me more resources. And they start to send him stuff. Some airplanes begin to go over in late 1940, remembering that MacArthur is retired from the U.S. Right. Army at this time, and he's uh, not going to be recalled to active duty until the end of July 1941. So it's not really his decision-making at this time. He's back there in the background, 
presumably has some influence, but is really increasingly marginalized. It's Gruner who thinks that he's going to be in charge. Exactly. And he's, under his leadership, the garrison's going to be built up. And he gets Congress, or gets the War Department to agree to increase the size of the Philippine Scouts. The Philippine Scouts, the size of it, uh, the size it can be, is set by law way back in 1901. It says 12,000. And uh, Congress can change that law, but that would be time-consuming and controversial. Mm -hmm. So he, he says, well, we've got 6,000 uh, under arms right now. We'll, we'll recruit 6,000 more. And he ensures to take those 6,000 from volunteers who had already completed Philippine Army training. And so, yes, people who were there at the time and saw this process thought, you know, in a remarkably short period of time, these guys have, have become professional soldiers capable of helping us defend the Philippines. So then MacArthur comes into office, recalled active duty July 26, 1941. Well, he's aware of, of what has happened, right. you know, and there's an idea, well, let's just get congressional approval to expand the Philippine Scouts and build up those regiments by bringing in more Philippine Army trainees. He, he thought that was politic, would be a political problem, mm -hmm. that uh, uh, you had to mobilize the Philippine Army as the Philippine Army, even if that might uh, reduce, you know, its, its trainability. I think the thinking was that they would cadre those Philippine scout units, right. bring in more American officers, because that was the real thing that they didn't want to say out loud, that MacArthur didn't want to say out loud, that Gruner didn't want to say out loud. Filipinos are fine soldiers, not under Filipino officers. Right. But if you're going to mobilize the Philippine Army, make it a national effort, get everyone on board, you can't just say, we'll take the warm bodies we need and put them under American command. You have to bring everyone on board. And uh, if that means they don't get trained quite as rapidly and you have to accept some officers that, that maybe you wish you didn't have to, well, that, that's not knowing Japan is going to attack in December 1941, then you think you've got the time. You know, that's a better way sure. to, to mobilize forces, to mobilize public opinion, to make it everyone's war. And in 4041, with the influx of the air power that's coming, do you think that's Grunert that spurs that on? Well, Grunert is pushing it. Yeah. Uh, and so, of course, he wants uh, these uh, the, the air core squadrons that are starting to arrive at the end of in late 1940. You know, whether the, the idea of bringing, uh, sending over bombers, you know, that is a debate going on back in the States at that time. And Grunert is participating, but, but he's not the one, I don't think, pushing to have uh, bomber squadrons sent over right. in, in the way that they were. That, that's really a decision made very, very late in the day, right? By the toward, War Department. Toward the end yeah. of 41, actually. Uh, Okay, we've said no up until this time, but now we're sort of mesmerized by what the B-17, the B-24 can do. Let's rush them over to the Philippines, and and that alone should should stay Japan's hand, make the Japanese see how unwise it would be. But of course, the Japanese thinking was, well, we need to attack now mm. before more and more stuff comes over, and we can't attack later. Now. The bombing of Clarkfield on December 8th is still a subject of great debate, and tons of books have been written about it. But what happens to Clark after the destruction, you know, in that period during the Philippine campaign? Well, um, as, as you say, um, the Japanese attack uh, around 1230 
December 8, 1941, through a series of uh, just bad luck, poor decision-making, not foreseeing how things might play out, a substantial part of the bomber force is caught on the ground there. So thereafter, Clark becomes what some had envisioned it being anyway, a, a sort of staging area. Mm-hmm. You know, move what remains of the bombing force further away where the Japanese can't get at it, and then use Clark as a forward staging area to launch raids up toward Formosa. You know, Colin Kelly does does his thing uh, at that time. So, so you so still what, still got facilities yeah, working there. Yeah. And some damaged B-17s are repaired. So it is still an operational base, mm. but uh, the units have moved out into the surrounding area so they're not targets of Japanese attack thereafter. And then, of course, uh, December 24th, the word just sort of goes around. I'm not sure anyone really knows who who is the originator of, of these things, but the word sort of goes around. We're pulling out and everyone beats feet out of the area, right. even though the Japanese are still a week away. Now, the Colin Kelly raid, and he gets the, the Distinguished Service Cross for this. Right. What really did or did not happen? Not, not a whole lot happened. Hey, the B, some B-17s went up to, to attack approaching Japanese transports and ships, and, and uh, he, his was one. It flew up and apparently attacked a, a ship. Uh, not clear that it actually hit anything, but um, uh, the plane was shot down. He was killed trying to return. Uh, to the south, and you know, given uh, the lack of achievement of accomplishment at the time, it was seized upon as a heroic. As one of the war's first real right. gravitating heroes, he was the first uh, West Point graduate mm-hmm. killed in, in, in action in World War II. Hmm. Now, what did the Japanese do with Clarksville? They developed it in a way the Americans uh, hadn't. They put an extensive uh, system of of uh, uh, landing strips, uh, 10 or 12 of them, uh, where Clark Field itself had been further to the north of Mabalak and Bam Bam. You know, they had airstrips throughout that area mm. and and used it as a, a base for attacking approaching Americans in October of 44. As a kamikaze strip. So it said, you know, yeah. I think different authorities on the kamikazes point to different uh, uh, dates and and uh, but that's one of them that's that's given. Now, after the liberation in '45, Clark is a major air base for the United States Air Force until right, yeah. until it's closing in the '80s. '91. '91. Right, okay. After yeah. the and you have a pretty close connection with Clark, don't you? Well, we we lived there. My dad got assigned to Clark in '65. And uh, he was on an accompanied tour, but there were so many men going in there that uh, even if you were on an accompanied because of the, the support of the, the war in Vietnam, mm. and so uh, you, you couldn't take your family. You had to put your name on a housing list first uh, off base and then on base, and then after a few months go by, you can invite them. to They, they can come over to the uh, Philippines. So that's when we first went there in, in February of 66, and... Uh, began to get acquainted with, at least I did, I took an interest with in, the history. in the history, and we were later there in the early 70s, and I, I did a work study with, uh, I think it was the 405th Fighter Wing History Office, and so I had an opportunity to learn more about uh, Clark's history. Well, we thank you for your time today. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening. 
If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.